Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. I'm John Potwartz, the editor of Commentary with me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we had a wonderful night last night. It was the uh, commentary roast of Mayor Soloveitchik, our annual uh, fundraising event. Commentary, as you may or may not know, is a nonprofit 501c3, and we survive and thrive based on the Elamasonary generosity of our readers, our listeners, and people who believe in the uh, intellectually driven analysis that we try to provide here uh, on a daily basis and in on our website on a daily basis and in our magazine on a monthly basis and 400 people uh, joined us for an evening of merriment, high spirited, good humor. And uh, it was just thrilling to see people, see 400 people without their mask on, everybody fully vaccinated, to, to, to see faces, to see people socializing with each other. I know this sounds, you know, banal, but it was sort of like anything but, and I cannot thank all of you enough who came. I cannot, uh, so many of you, uh, so many people came from all over the country because they wanted to be with us and, um, and, and contribute and, you were so kind and it was so wonderful to meet you. And I think all of us, uh, Abe, Christine, Noah, and I um, uh, were just deeply moved by, by the kind words you spoke about how much uh, this podcast and how much the magazine, how much the website uh, have done for you in the time of uh, uh, the disruptions of the last two years. And as I said last night, uh, what you've done for us is inestimably more than what, what you may think we have done to help you. We started this daily podcast in March of 2020 as a, just sort of like a, a throwaway experiment. Like maybe we should just do a podcast once a day, sort of like on the model of Ted Koppel's Nightline, which started because of the Iranian hostage crisis in 1979 as a daily update on what was going on. This was gonna be a daily update on COVID. And, um, you know, it just exploded and we, it kept us sane. I don't know how to say this any better. We, you know, we were all obviously under lockdown like everybody else was. and. But we spent this hour, hour and a half a day on this Zoom that we then recorded for you to listen to. And it kept us connected. It gave us ideas for what to write about, what to talk about, um, helped us develop our thoughts on matters as various as COVID, as the Black Lives Matter riots and the uh, arrival of the uh, efforts to kind of destroy American schooling, American education, uh, and uh, and the uh, the new trashing of America that was represented by everything that went on in 2020 and 2021 in the precincts of the left, and it was that was into that was cerebrally unbelievably hardening and emotionally it kept us it gave us a sense of connection to our purpose and 
uh, that's all due to you, the fact that you guys listen and that you were interested enough to keep listening. And for those of you who came and expressed your gratitude, like I say, I think we, we, we can't express our gratitude enough to you guys for, for being there. And, and the fact that those of you who are dedicated podcast listeners showed up last night, which was fantastic because we did a little sketch and our jokes would not have landed at all if you all were not there in the audience getting all of our weird inside humor and our attempts to kind of mock ourselves a little bit. So it was really, really, it was fantastic to meet so many, so many listeners and, and hear their thoughts. By the way, everybody was curious if we actually kind of made ourselves presentable during lockdown when we would meet every day on Zoom. And I have to say, we, we tried to keep up a certain standard of, of appearance. I want to, you know, I, this reminded me of something, which is that... Um, uh, my son uh, was uh, for, for complicated. My son was was uh, was back in Zoom school for the last couple of days, and uh, he's eleven. And he came out, so he was going to bed to sit down, and he came out of his room with a in the morning with a with a shirt on, and and his. And he said, "What what what? Am I ready to go to school?" And I said, "Sure." And he's like, "No, I'm not. I don't have any pants on." But it was sort of like, well, I could just sit and not have any pants on because of course he's head up on a Zoom. And I then remembered this, the opening line of one of my favorite movies, uh, Kentucky Fried Movie, which is a series of sketches. It's the first movie written by podcast guest commentary contributor, David Zucker and his brother, Jerry, and their friend, Jim Abrahams. Uh, this is the movie they made before Airplane. And it's a series of TV sketches. And the movie opens with a, with a very sober looking anchorman, you know, uh, at a desk. Uh, and he says, I'm not wearing any pants. Film at 11. And I said this to my son. And then I realized that the phrase film at 11 literally meant absolutely nothing to him. That kind of movie I think came out in 1977, something like that. So, you know, Film at 11 was this line that when they did cutaways during primetime, you know, to get you excited about watching the local news after, you know, after you were watching Marcus Welby MD or Police Story or, you know, I don't know what, um, you know, they would stay with, they would say, oh, this is really exciting. You know, we actually have film we can show you of something, right? So it's, I'm not wearing any pants, film at 11. And he looked at me with this absolutely puzzled expression. And then I realized that I was extremely old because I was making a 50 year old reference to a, to a phenomenon that is so far distant in the past that it's beyond all reckoning. So yes, we could have not been wearing any pants but we wore, we wore pants. Thus not making the error that Jeff Tubin made. I have always worn pants. I don't go you know downstairs what? without showering and putting on my clothing. So this you're, you're is- like, You're like Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan right. would not go into the Oval Office without a jacket and tie on, including- Slightly less austere settings, but yes, generally. Respect Frank, for the office, the home office. Frank Sinatra used to only record with jacket and tie. I think I think that was early. I think by the time he made that album with that uh, "L.A. Is My Lady" or whatever, I think he was he was done with that. He was wearing a yeah, members, members only too. jacket. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah well, there, right? Yeah, yeah he, could, he couldn't sing that. Right. 
So Joe Biden and the Biden administration are readying the release of 50 million barrels of oil from the strategic petroleum reserve as their blow against inflation before Thanksgiving. This is a pretty stunningly idiotic development. Uh, I think this represents a day or two or something like that of American consumption of of gasoline. And so uh, the idea that it will have any any relevant effect on, on prices, except in the very short term at some point, you know, in a couple of weeks, uh, it's just that he needed to do something, right? So he did something that, that, was, that was to hand. Um, and I think it, it indicates the, the degree of impotency that he and uh, everybody in Washington are feeling about dealing with the horror that has beset the country in the form of inflation. There's, it, there's a pattern here with how they handle these things, particularly with inflation, right? First, we were told it's not happening. Then we were told it, it's happening, but it's transitory. Then we were told, actually, it's good that it's happening because it'll make us you know, rein in our spending and, and behave more like Europeans. And now it's finally... It's happening. We guess that's bad. We're going to throw some, you know, some barrels of oil at the problem. Meanwhile, the mainstream media is not on board with with getting over this. There, you know, NBC News had a segment the other day which said, if you're worried about the price of your Thanksgiving dinner, which a lot of Americans are, consider not having a turkey. So the, the response here doesn't. Again, none of it is addressing the genuine concerns of the American people, and it's it's affecting the Democratic Party's brand. It's affecting how people see Joe Biden as whether or not he's a competent leader. It reminds me uh, of when Biden had that like powwow at the ports and they, in October, then they announced the announced the expansion of port hours um, to try to fix the bottleneck. You know, it's having a similar drop uh, in the ocean effect. All well, policies are, are designed, democratic policies are designed to thwart, thwart this sort of thing. Like if you go into the Build Back Better agenda, for example, there's efforts to uh, circumvent or prevent the automation of ports as a sop to, to longshoremen and, you know, gener- the various unions that uh, populate ports, which would indelibly make the problem worse. The energy problem here is in no small part due to green policies, the this administration's green policies, environmental policies in Europe, uh, all of which are contributing to an energy crunch that they can't eliminate. They can't eliminate these policies. They're, they're, they're sops to their various constituent groups that they need. So they're doing something as cosmetic as possible to address a much lo- the concerns of a much larger host. Uh, and they, I don't think they've reconciled, reckoned with the fact that they are pursuing a whole lot of very self-destructive policies for a very small constituent group at the expense of a much larger one. Well, okay, so that's the cynical reading, right? The cynical reading is that they're doing this as a sop. I think there's something that's both better and much worse to look at it this way, which is that they are ideologically committed to the idea that if we continue on our present course in in our energy consumption on the planet Earth, the planet Earth is going to be uninhabitable in 100 years. And so we have to take radical measures, get ourselves off our dependency on oil in this and go with all this green stuff, right? Which will entail an immense amount of pain because we have to shift gears really fast to keep the planet from warming and to keep the oceans from rising and flooding and 
you know, heat events that will create destabilization and all of that. So own it. Own it. Explain to people that there is an there's an opportunity in what is going on here in the rise of gas prices, which is that they need to go up even more. We need to make this form of energy consumption as unattractive as possible in order to save the planet for generations to come. But they're not saying that. They don't say that the things that they advocate are going to have costs as well as benefits. All they say is, we're going to spend all this money on green stuff and it's going to provide jobs. But it only works if while the green stuff is being subsidized, you make the non-green stuff as unattractive as possible to people so that they have an incentive to switch to the green stuff, which is more expensive. So you either make the non-green stuff more expensive and less accessible. They're not going to do it as a matter of course, but so they've chosen the worst of both worlds, which is that they scream about the threat. They advocate policies that are inherently inflationary for the present moment. And then they complain that they got trouble with inflation. And then they do things like take gas out of the strategic petroleum reserve or push China to do stuff or beg OPEC to start producing more when their policies are in part responsible for the slowdown in American economic investment in oil and gas and fracking and things like that, uh, opposing the Keystone pipeline, opposing new 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 oil platforms, not just opposing, opposing the, forcing them to shut down. You know, right. <clears throat> this is the administration just nixing this project, as well as a variety of others, making it much more difficult for these carbon capture, underground carbon capture tanks, which is something that you know the, the these uh, uh, pipelines need as part of federal reg regulation, so they can't build those pipelines, which is contributing to the spooking of investors who have to develop these wells, crude oil wells, natural gas deposits, take like 10 years to bring that stuff to market. So it's a very long-term speculative investment and the environment is not is very hostile right now. And part of the problem with the green stuff is that the laws of physics prevent it from being, with the exception of hydroelectric, prevent it from being a reliable source of immediate power generation. Um, those lithium ion batteries only have the capacity to do so much and hold so much. So you, they come to the place here where they have this energy policy that's sort of none of the above. It's as, it's as though, yeah, we shouldn't have fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are bad and dangerous, but also the foreign producers need to produce a whole lot more fossil fuels um, because we have to have a, you know, a competent economy that can develop these products. But if we develop these products, then we're going to be in an even worse position. It is so contradictory that if they were to articulate it, and Jen Psaki tried this once briefly at a, at a briefing, she said, you know, we actually want to see these products become competitive and that in order for them to become competitive, fossil fuels have to be more expensive. She did trot that line out and it landed like a lead balloon because nobody actually wants more expensive energy. Well, no, people do want more expensive energy. Um, by no one, I mean normal human beings who make or break right. congressional majorities and presidential right. administrations, that, by which I mean the, is, the very teeny, teeny activist wing that they're catering to. So, uh, you know, I, it's interesting because, of course, inflation is a lot more than energy prices, right? Although energy prices is probably the, you know, the, the, the big ticket item where you see it or you feel it the most, you know, particularly if you're a suburban American and you drive a couple hundred miles a week or more and you have to fill up your tank twice, you know, each time you fill it up, if it's 
two or three dollars more expensive than it was the last time you filled it up like you you notice right but um larry summers the former uh you know the former president of harvard the guy who was you know treasury secretary all of this said this very canny thing about the politics of inflation he said really for the past 40 years really since the since inflation was broken uh in america like was that we broke the back of an inflationary spiral at the beginning of the 1980s we focus on things like job numbers to explain the pain in the economy so seven percent of people are out of you know we, we consider it high, high unemployment number high if it's seven percent or more seven percent of people are unemployed that's terrible look at the pain and all of that but when you think about it if seven percent of the available workforce is unemployed 93 percent of the workforce is on is, is employed and therefore uh while there are issues there because uh you know a loose labor market means they're not going to get raises very much or their you know their 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 economic prospects aren't necessarily going to increase that much 93% of them are not suffering from the immediate consequences of a bad job market. When there is inflation, 100% of people experience inflation. Now, if you're rich, it has very little impact on you. But inflation is a regressive tax. It affects people more and more, the lower and lower down the socioeconomic scale you go. We hate regressive taxes, right? All of liberal social policy is based on the notion of the progressive tax. So inflation is the ultimate regressive tax and it hits everybody. And therefore you can't bluff your way out of it. You can't create a jobs program and say, oh my God, I, I got this great jobs program. It's really gonna help a lot of people so that the employed people go, that's nice. There's a really good jobs program gonna get people back on their feet, right? So that you can say it because that, that's not directly affecting them. They're employed, they're fine. Everybody suffers from inflation. And because everybody suffers from inflation, you can't take 50 million barrels out of the strategic petroleum reserve and then convince anybody that you're solving anything. When I was a teenager, a young teenager, Gerald Ford, the hapless president from 1974 to 1976, announced a war on inflation. And one of the things that they were going to do in the war on inflation was everybody was going to wear a button that said, win. Whip inflation now. The White House, they produced buttons, millions of buttons you were to put on your lapel that said, whip inflation now. That's a little like what's going on now. It's like, let's not have inflation. Bad, bad inflation. I, am, I refuse to ever wear a BBB button. I'm just putting that out there. I will yeah. not do it. I think a win button is better than what's happening because it, it, there's not the same amount of um, denial involved, right? It's, it's, it's stating the problem on a button. <laughs> Fair enough. That's true. I mean, one of the reasons, by the way, I mean, because we had never seen the United States had never seen what happened in the, in the 70s. I mean, we'd seen inflation time and again. There was inflation in the 1960s, but we didn't see the fact that inflation was rising at a time when other economic indicators were falling. That was a weird that that's where stagflation, the notion of stagflation starts coming in. And it was a, though stagflation didn't really start happening in earnest until the late 70s 
but um, it was new. And uh, a lot of economic lessons were learned as a result of what happened in the 70s when the country and, and indeed the world went through a dislocation that was and, and many routes and many causes, including oil embargoes and, and going off the gold standard and the Bretton Woods agreement, all kinds of things happened that, that created new economic realities that people needed to understand how the the law, the law of unintended consequences wasn't going to play and how to ev evade that over time by adopting sensible policies that wouldn't create conditions that nobody wanted, like inflation. And here we are, and we're creating inflation, and there, there's the, you know, uh, I mean, to be fair, people like our friend David Bonds and others say, inflation is not being created by monetary policy. Inflation is not being created. Inflation is the result of, you know, vast amounts of government, of bipartisan support for vast amounts of government spending and, and a concomitant increase in the national debt that is so vast that whatever is going on now is going to be followed at some point by a massive deflationary effect in the form of, uh, you know, just a massive correction. So, so we're not only talking about inflation, we are talking about going into a period in which the inflation is going to mask a deflation, Japan style, and then we will have decades of very low or no economic growth whatsoever. That is, that is the, that's the nightmare scenario here. And that seems to be what they were most afraid of back in June, <clears throat> uh, White House economic advisor Jared Bernstein was talking about, you know, we're not sitting on our hands, he said, when it com comes to inflation, but their primary concern was to subsidize artificially demand to keep goods, you know, keep demand for goods up and keep people spending and keep the economy ballasted, uh, even at the you know, uh, with the prospect of increasing uh, inflationary pressures on the currency. And that seems to be what's happening. We, we still have plenty of consumer demand, too much, in fact, because there's too few goods to satisfy that demand, which is contributing, again, to inflation. So it is, you know, a, a terrible cycle and a spiral. But how you, how you, you know, really deal with that in a sustainable way is to increase supply and, and re releasing the strategic petroleum reserve would only be part of that if it was coupled with a series of other initiatives designed to spur investment in the exploration and exploitation of American wells, domestic wells, European sources of fossil fuels, because that's what would push pressure on foreign suppliers to match. That's not the year. So look at this, and then you look at the general condition, these articles that come out now every day, Democratic focus groups, polls, this and that, all of which say that Biden and the Democrats are in very bad shape, like shockingly bad shape. Given American polarization, we're told that everything is so polarized, right? I mean, if everything is so polarized, then the polarization should lead to, you know, uh, there's this uh, Republican surge and there should, be a, there should be a sort of equal and opposite Democratic surge in reaction to the Republican surge because that's how polarization works. But it appears that there is kind of a withdrawal from the Democratic Party, from let's say a lot of its fellow travelers or people who are not just implicitly in the base. And um, Abe, this, this sort of brings up a, a, something that Noah said in November, 2020, when the results, the, the day after the 
the election results uh, came out and, and he said, you know, it's interesting. It's like a Goldilocks election, Noah said, because so the, so the public voted against uh, sort of the Trump chaos, but it did not want to affirm democratic control. So it, so in, in, uh, in contrast to almost everything anybody ever expected, uh, 15 Republicans picked up 15 seats in the House and maintained, it appeared had maintained control of the Senate. Then the Georgia craziness happened and they lost the two Georgia seats due to Trump actually convincing Republicans to stay home and not vote. Uh, and so um, the Goldilocks election then turns into a circumstance in which Biden having won a very small, you know, won four points, uh, same electoral vote total as Trump, gets himself a 50-50 Senate in which the tie can be broken by Kamala Harris and a five-seat majority in the House and decides that he's FDR. Here we are in November, uh, 11 and a half months till the midterm elections. And um, were, were the gods just playing tricks with him? Like, were the, was, is this, was this a test of Joe Biden's ability to understand the world and deal with it as it really is um, would, or, you know, and uh, which he clearly failed, or would he have been better off had Georgia not happened? Had uh, David Perdue and I can't remember who the, uh, Kelly Leffler, had they, had they won those races instead of losing them because Trump hadn't been a psychotic lunatic uh, and, sure. had, you know, deliberately, trashed his own party's ability to control the Senate, would Biden have been better off? He'd have been better off. The Democrats in general would have been better off because all the problems uh, that they are dealing with now in terms of their unpopularity stem from within their own party. And they didn't have a playbook that didn't involve not blaming Republicans, um, which is- Credibly, credibly. Well, credibly or not. Credibly yeah. or not, I mean, you know, uh, but, you know, that's been going on since Obama, uh, you know, uh, talking about, you know, how, how he, he, they don't let him do anything, uh, you know, sort of uh, reaction. I mean, one approach was to uh, try to turn uh, moderate Democrats into Republicans and blame them. It hasn't worked. Um, so now they're sort of left with the, the, the approach that we discussed a few weeks ago, the Democrats... And the Biden administration, they're just going to wait, wait till things get better. That's it. Sit back. Let time pass. That is that is the approach. And I just want to say, without their ability, without the ability to blame Republicans, um, it's brought so many of their the Democratic proposals and policy ideas under scrutiny and sort of exposed them um, because there isn't the the active opposition uh, partisan opposition. I mean, any in any meaningful way. So they are um, they're in a bad place because they they have they have to defend their position to everyone. 
There's, it's funny, right? I mean, I, I keep a kind of mental file of own goals by each side, you know, both Republicans and the Democrats. And my little file on uh, own goals by the Democrats has just grown exponentially since Biden took office. And it's on and it's on serious everyday issues for Americans. That's that's their problem. These aren't just, you know, sort of broad policy questions that maybe, you know, most people don't worry about. It's kitchen table issues like inflation. It's issues like crime. It's issues like identity politics. And and the and I think Abe is absolutely right that when those policies, um, when people question them, the strategy has been to double down on the identity politics, to call Hispanic voters and um, Asian American voters white adjacent when they criticize some of these things instead of listening to the actual complaint and, and dealing with it head on. And they are alienated people who they always assumed, I think rather um, uh, obnoxiously, should be part of their base that they don't even have to bother to cater to because we're Democrats, they'll love us. That's that's just fracturing right now before their eyes. And there is a bit of panic that sets in when, as in Virginia's off-year election, they see what that means at the polls. So, uh, Noah, Abe, you're busy, guys. You're busy. Got to do these podcasts. You got to be dressed. So let me give you a piece of advice. Stop thinking about what to wear and just embrace the radically efficient Mack Weldon daily wear system. This is a selection of clothes rooted in smart design, made with performance fabrics and built to work together from breathable t-shirts and polos to stylish button-ups and shorts, underwear and beyond. Mack Weldon makes it easy for you to dress for work, leisure and play wherever you fall takes you. For the ultimate lazy Sunday, their ace sweatshorts have modern tailoring and pair perfectly with their ultra soft, ultra graded Pima tees. For weekend travels both near and far, particularly if you're going to go someplace, you know, warm and balmy uh, around Christmas or, you know, the new year, their silver knit polo and radius shorts are the perfect high tech, highly packable combo. So buy some time this fall. Buy some stuff for people in your life for the holidays with the Mac Weldon daily wear system for 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com slash commentary and enter promo code commentary. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com slash commentary. Promo code commentary for 20% off Mac Weldon, radically efficient wardrobing. Um, Somebody made the point uh, yesterday, either in, in, on my Twitter feed or or on, on Facebook, um, that there was a dog that didn't bark this weekend. And that was uh, that aside, in, at least in my city, from 200 people, you know, like being idiots around the Barclays Center in Brooklyn and turning whatever they were doing into an attack on Israel, stuff like that, that... Um, there were no protests uh, after the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. No pro. I mean, there were, there were you know nothing violent, nothing bad. Stuff didn't happen in Kenosha, despite the fact that the governor called the national guard in, or maybe because the governor called the national guard in. Who knows? But um, and that um, this then raises an interesting question about the nature of protests, like. We've been saying, the media, the res res response has been, you know, this is an act of white supremacy. But in fact, as we know, Kyle Rittenhouse is a 17-year-old white kid who shot three uh, white people, uh, one, who grabbed, one, who sought, one who grabbed his gun, one who pointed a gun at him, and one who hit him in the head with a skateboard. 
How this then becomes a racial incident is very, very hard to fathom, except that it took place in the aftermath of a confrontation between a, uh, 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 a, a criminal of color um, uh, who was in the midst of uh, abusing and kidnapping his family and, and, and police in, in Kenosha. Um, which of course then brings up the interesting question of the protests of the summer of 2020 and how much of them were about racial justice issues or whatever, and how much of it was in fact, the spontaneous reaction of millions of people who needed to get the hell out of the house because they had been trapped inside for months because of COVID lockdowns. Well, it's probably probably more complicated than that, but also, yeah, I, I'm on the record, both on this podcast and in writing on the website that yes, lockdowns were responsible in large measure, if not wholly for the uh, both peaceful and violent demonstrations that we saw the second they had a permission structure that allowed them to go out and do that um, by politicians who have been saying, you know, it's, it's the height of social responsibility to stay in your house, otherwise you're killing people. All of a sudden that turned around 180 and everyone took advantage of it, particularly those demographics that were listening very closely to these individuals. I think that's a, a likely explanation for the riots and the, and the protests in the summer of 2020. Um, I- when it comes to the big trials, however, there's something to be said for televising them to the extent that they are televised. Because I remember after the verdict in the George Zimmerman trial, there were a lot of predictions that people would riot if it didn't turn the way that the press clearly wanted it to go. And I didn't see that happening in part because it was so granularly covered in the press and it was a general interest story to the point where most a lot of people who have any remote interest in news stories were following it very closely to the extent that you could have reasonable doubt that you yourself could follow an inept prosecution and a series of witnesses who didn't didn't confirm what the what the prosecutions with the district attorney's narrative was that even the audience had reasonable doubt here. Now, maybe that's thinking too much of the audience. It's possible. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's condescension to believe that people aren't capable of understanding a jury system in a way that our very condescending media assumes we're not. Um, which raises something that I think a question that I think you had mentioned earlier, John, and are, and are going into the extent to which the press has not followed and therefore the public is not aware of the details in the trial of the people who killed um, Ahmed Aubrey. Uh, that is one that hasn't been dominating the press. Uh, and it is just as ambiguous in certain ways. And if it doesn't go the way everybody expects it to go. Um, there, there might be an, a backlash in ways that might not be entirely justified, in part because prosecutors tried very hard not to bring charges in this okay, case. So I, this is a, yeah, can I ahead. just with just one more beat on the on on Wisconsin in particular and, and the Jacob Blake incident, because I think I think everything Noah said is correct with one caveat, which is that there is a an absolute elite meet and, and the elite media institution in particular, uh, a commitment to maintaining a narrative sort of through the prism of Black Lives Matter, the idea that anytime a Black person comes under the scrutiny of law enforcement or is injured by law enforcement, law enforcement is to blame. That happened with Jacob Blake. He was armed. There was a felony arrest warrant for him for sexual assault and and other uh, issues. It was very clear that the Biden Justice Department has even cleared the cop who did this. There have been plenty of investigations. And yet, 
the DCCC issued, you know, its spokesman issued a thing claiming that, claiming that Jacob Blake had been killed. I mean, the, the, the amount of misinformation that has to suit a narrative in, in our elite media institutions on this case in particular continues to be egregious. It's, it's, and it does actively misinform for the sake of an ideological goal. And that, I think, will unfortunately continue in all of these cases. I mean, one of the I, things that the press hey, does... I'm sorry. Let, let it, it, well, sure. I just, I just want to... There, there's another element, I think, in why uh, there, we're not seeing... We didn't see uh, violent riots uh, after, 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 the, um, after the jury weighed in. Um, part of the perfect storm of 2020 was Trump, um, Trump being in office. And some, I mean, I, I agree with everything Noah said regarding the the lockdowns and COVID and the, and the permission to, that was the one thing you could do. But also in some sense, uh, all, all, the, all the rioting in 2020 was an extension of things like the Women's March and uh, sort of the resistance, you know, it was, we, we were primed for that in some sense, even before COVID and the lockdowns. I think that's a very good point. I had, I mean, it's an original point because uh, there had been a sort of romanticization or a glorification of sort of uh, direct action, right? Uh, you know, direct protest. We will not accept the results of this kind of thing, right? Which is what the Women's March was and, 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 and all of that. There are two, you know, two strains in American life, right? So in American life, we have elections. Elections are plebiscites and they, 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 they rule things up or down the uh, the election of 2016 had an ambiguity to it because of course Trump won 306 electoral votes but lost the popular vote by two percentage points thus in thus inflaming the entire conversation around are we a one man one vote country why do we have the electoral college are rural places you know have too much power over over urban places, you know, why are we doing it this way? And therefore, Trump was somehow, you know, illegitimate. And we can now see, by the way, why pl playing with an argument like that is like playing with fire, because you start saying Trump is illegitimate, then you're Stacey Abrams in 2018 saying that you lose by 50,000 votes, and that is illegitimate because legislation was passed that you don't like, that restricted or that changed, you know, it called for certain ways of looking at voting. And so now you were improperly not elected. And then guess what? Somebody else gets to use that argument later in a way that you really don't like. And then in fact, I, but I don't like any of it, right? I don't like the anti-electoral college stuff. I think Stacey Abrams was wildly irresponsible and the sucking up to her was repellent. And I think that Trump's behavior claiming that the election was stolen from him was repellent, but it's all of a certain type of piece, as is the fact that when you start, when you start um, valorizing things like protest marches and movements as though somehow they are not only equal to, but are morally superior to election results, that because people are moved to go out in the streets and protest somehow, they are higher, they're their view, because of the expression of passion, their willingness to be there, you know, out in the street showing, uh, you know, uh, numbers and force is somehow, because of this romantic idea uh, that I, I, you know, is too complicated to go into right now, like that, that's preposterous, you know, hundreds of millions of people vote in an election 
3 million people come out to protest. It, it's something, it meant a lot, the Women's March. It was the precursor to the democratic surge in 2018. And we shouldn't look at it askance. It's not that people don't have the right to protest and make these suggestions. But if you then have this world in which Trump wins, Republicans win, and you're only, you know, and so therefore what you want to do is prove that he didn't or prove that you're better than, than he is, and you start accepting all these exceptions to the general practice of a, of a civilized republic, you are going to end up in the summer of 2020 with cities burning and then with people standing with microphones on MSNBC in front of burning cities saying, nothing's burning here. Ali Velshi standing there saying, I don't really see much violence and there's a fire over his left shoulder. You know, uh, and yeah, that, that could only have happened in the age of Trump because some somehow, you know, all resistance to Trump and somehow the idea that the cops in, 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 uh, in the Twin Cities were somehow sort of like representatives of the age of Trump, right? When of course the incidents that pre preceded this, that were, the, that were the kindling that lit the fire or you know, that, that were the base for the fire that erupted with George Floyd happened during the Obama administration. Eric Garner's chokehold death in Staten Island, Michael Brown in, in, in Ferguson. That stuff all didn't happen during Trump. Uh, that's when Black Lives Matter was born, was, was during the Obama administration. Yeah. Right. Anyway, I think it's a very it's a it's a it's a, a very salient point. To get to to talk a little bit about the the Ahmed Orbury case. Um, I haven't been following it that closely. Uh, and I am suspicious of some of the sources that I'm reading that suggest that the courtroom battle is going badly for the prosecution. Uh, but, you know, this is why, again, we have juries. I mean, we're back to why we have juries, which is that people saw the video in which these three guys chased him down and yelled at him. And then, you know, there was a struggle off camera and, then he was shot and there he was dead and the and there were no initial charges against him and then the state examined and in fact one of the prosecutors was removed and then charged for negligence and a public outcry led to these charges i guess federal charges being levied against uh against these three guys and um you know it looked like an open and shut case to me based on what I knew, but I'm not on the jury. This is why we have juries, so that people like me don't decide the fate of, 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 of the guys charged in the killing of Amin Aubrey, because what do I know? I'm not sitting there listening to the evidence. I'm not hearing disputes over the nature of Georgia law on making citizens arrests and what constitutes trespass and all of that. That's why we have court cases and juries and why people having riots as a result of the findings of actual people whose lives are, who have been tasked with putting, you know, taking the lives of people's in their hands and trying to deal with their fates. Um, it's why jury findings are so important, actually, you could say. I mean, the jury found that uh, Derek Chauvin 
was responsible for the murder of of George Floyd. And despite the fact that there are a bunch of people in this country who think that's not right, there were no riots after that. Because again, a jury was there, a case was brought, he had a defense, they had a prosecution, he had the benefit of reasonable doubt and being innocent until proven guilty. And the prosecution overcame that implicit bias in the defense's favor, which people were complaining about in the Rittenhouse case. You looked on Twitter, people were like, it's not fair. This is all skewed toward the defense. That's our justice system. We believe people are innocent until proven guilty. You have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, not because you just want to find someone guilty. Um, and I, so I, yeah, go ahead. There, there are interesting um, protest optics with the Arbery trial, though, that had they been replicated or in, in reverse at the Rittenhouse trial, I think we would have heard a lot more about them. Um, you know, the, the new Black Panther armed black militia, all these groups have gathered outside the courthouse in the Arbery trial, saying in, in some cases, saying some fairly violent statements um, about what will happen if the verdict doesn't go down the way they expect or want. Um, some of it's likely histrionics. You know, if they have licenses to carry their weapons, that's fine as long as they aren't doing anything. You know, they, they have good uh, control of their weapons. I don't have a problem with that. But I was, you know, when I read about this, I'm wondering, um, imagine if white armed militias were standing outside the, the Kenosha courthouse during this trial and behaving in this way and making these sort of threatening remarks that the media was amplifying. I just don't think we'd be getting the same narrative or, or either the same a lack of attention to that. So, uh, you know, I'm not denying anyone their right to to stand outside a courtroom and, and exercise their their First Amendment rights. But it is interesting to me the tone of the 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 sort of protest that we're seeing already uh, as as this case wraps up. That had they played out in Kenosha, would never have been covered in in as sympathetic a way. I think. Well, we saw this with one of the defense counsel in the in the, in the case in the courtroom that the uh, the prosecute that in the courtroom, you know, Al Sharpton came into the courtroom and Jesse Jackson came into the courtroom and somebody else, and he objected and he was pilloried, right? He said, we don't need people here who are sitting there whose purpose is somehow to try to make a political point to the jury by their presence. Now, if he's willing to suffer the slings and arrows of, you know, of public condemnation for saying something like that, you know, uh, which which happened, I don't think that that point is, you know, is arguable. That that their purpose in being in the courtroom is to suggest something to the jurors about the nature of what happened to Ahmed Arbery and try to try to move them in one way or the other. Well, I, I mean, community leaders, black community leaders in Georgia are making statements to the press already. The Washington Post has a quote this morning in a story where a, a church leader says, you know, if the verdict is wrong, then I can't be, you know, I'm we're not going to be able to stop what's going to happen. I mean, that that's an, uh, that's not even an implicit threat. That's like if this doesn't go our way, there's going to be, you know, serious protests. And that I. I don't I personally don't like those kind of threats, no matter who's making them. That is not the way our systems are. And you can't call a verdict wrong. There's a verdict. It's it's the verdict. It's you might disagree with the verdict. You might want to appeal the verdict, but you can't just say this. It undermines the justice system to say I didn't like the outcome of this or I don't like the law that was upheld here. But I, rather than change the law, I'm just going to create chaos. 
But of course, th this is the real evil of the systemic racism argument, which is that according to the systemic racism argument, uh, there is no such thing as fairness uh, in, the, in, in such prosecutions because systemic racism means that the system will always be biased in favor of the white defendants against, you know, uh, against a dead black, you know, uh, victim. And so uh, you're saying the, the verdict can't be wrong. The verdict is always wrong. Or if the verdict's right, it's only it's only a matter of good luck that the verdict is right because the system itself is 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 corrupted, and once you once you accept that argument as implicit, uh, there is no limiting principle to it. Anything that happens that you decide is gone away that you don't think it should go is a mark of a systemic failure of of, of American society, and therefore. It's wrong on its face. Well, it and justifies it goes, all your actions. Sorry, I'm continuing. If, that's right. Yeah. If it goes the way you did want it to go, you need to caution people not to get too excited about it. Right. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. mean that there's only any the any beginning. Deep, yes, right. Yeah. Yes. I remember yeah, I mean, getting where, into where an argument with uh, New York Times writer Jamil Bowie over this not too long ago. There's the, the flawed nature of the systemic racism argument insofar as <clears throat> it, it, even if the system is flawed, it is reformable. And to talk yourself out of the notion that you can reform it is to embrace a fatalism that will lead you to street action inevitably, or at least justify street action. And, and Bowie comes back to me and says, wow, way to, way to articulate the, the logic of every civil rights leader. And to which the response is yes, obviously, but I didn't abandon that logic. You did. You're the one who you're the one who's who's abandoned the 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 animating principle of the civil rights leaders who believe that the system, while flawed, was the the instrument by which you could deliver uh, oppressed minorities out from their conditions. That's your problem, not mine. Yeah, you went into street action. You did street action in order to create political pressure on the elected officials to change the laws so that the laws would be more just not so that you would create the conditions under which 12 individual people on a jury deal with the flat facts in a case and the laws as they exist in the state at the time and by the way so the laws in georgia were changed on some of these matters because of what happened to ahmed aubrey which creates an interesting condition which is they were changed doesn't that give you the sense that these guys might get off because they got changed because there was concern that they had acted within the bounds of the law at the time. And if they acted within the bounds of the law at the time, they are not, and the jury, it doesn't jury nullify. Uh, I mean, I don't know which laws because it's not all the charges in the case, but they will be acquitted, you know, because they didn't break the law at the time. We don't, we don't arrest people for doing things that were are, are considered criminal now that weren't considered criminal at the moment that they were done. Well, but but this speaks to, I think, the broader overarching worldview of uh, the people who uh, Abe outlined it. Yes, this is a revolution, a piece which, by the way, got a but really well deserved shout out at last night's roast. Um, but it it it's the idea that the, the focus should now be on burning everything down, not on what we'll re rebuild afterwards, but 
the pragmatic reformist approach has not given them the results that they want. So it must, the system must be raised to the ground and something new built. But the raising of it is really what animates the mob. The building takes a long time and is the difficult work that, you know, we have just been doing in this country for hundreds of years. That's that's not what they want to focus on because it's it's the burning and down. And I think that's where this worldview of reform is impossible, that this is the real distinction between the the uh, traditional civil rights movement and the current anti-racist movement. The anti-racist movement has no respect for the fact that reform and pragmatic change can make possible the kind of justice that civil rights leaders uh, foresaw and could see in our founding documents themselves. That's not, there's no patience for that with the anti-racist, systemic racist view. Look, I mean, we saw this in the aftermath of the George Floyd verdict. Like what did the George Floyd, what would the George Floyd verdict in a more reasonable world have said to the kind of body of opinion that was obsessed with this case as an example of American horror. What it would have said was the system worked. Something happened. A jury of Derek Chauvin's peers heard the evidence, heard the countervailing, heard the defense, heard everything and came to a conclusion that he was guilty of murder. The system worked. Did the collective opinion of the world that exploded as a result of the George Floyd killing, did they say, thank God the system worked? Did they say this is a blow, this is, a, this is an example of why we have a great system that will, you know, that will look at these cases and, and adjudicate them fairly? No. That was not said, and we know it was not said because what was it, six months later, Kyle Rittenhouse tried under similar public circumstances, is acquitted instead of, you know, against the wishes of the, you know, of this same kind of commentariat activist world. And the idea is no, the verdict is, uh, the, the verdict is illegitimate. Because again, they don't, it, the, the system is meaningless to them. They don't actually care about the system. They care about results. It's not a quality of opportunity, which is what is provided by the jury system. It is a quality of result, which is whatever I want the result to be should be what it is. And otherwise, if it isn't, I'm, I'm against it. You know, it's sort of like, um, it's like uh, crazy parents at a kid's, you know, baseball game who don't care about the justice of the umpire's calls. They just want their team to win. Um, it's enough to make you get a backache. And you know what I'm gonna say now with that transition, it's time to talk about the X chair. If you get one, you will look forward to sitting in your office at your desk because you can get a massage while you're working. Your chair can heat you up or cool you down whether you're too hot or too cold. That's what the X chair can do with its LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for the X chair. And I don't, I can't even tell you about the X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL that support that gives you the comfort in your back that will mean that you will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons to love the X chair Take my advice, try the X chair yourself, risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, 
the word chair, commentary.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. XChairCommentary.com. So we we got to go. Anybody got any final thoughts? If you don't have any final thoughts, which is understandable because I didn't know we were going to have to go so fast, but we do. I'll just say, we'll talk to you tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noam, John Potthorts, keep the candle burning.